welcome to the F1 Strategy Report for Formula Legend. On this week's edition, the Austrian Grand Prix, who hit who in the fight for the lead on the last lap, and just how did Jensen Button finish sixth? That's all to come in this edition of the Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato, and my guest this week for what was a surprisingly, strategically thrilling Austrian Grand Prix, it must be said, and there's no doubt you'll know the voice. He almost doesn't need an intro, but uh, convention dictates I give him one. His surname is not in the pit lane. It is Kravitz, first name Ted. He joins me. How are you? Hello. Uh, Yeah, good. All right. Got a bit of a cold, but yeah, otherwise fine. Thank you. That's just the the mark of Formula One in this huge uh, month of racing, really. It's, (laughs) what is it, five races in six weeks or something like that? Yeah, something like that. It's the two back to backs yeah it's it is tough tough on everyone mm, and only one race in so we'll keep you in our thoughts as we go through the next couple of rounds yeah. um of course the british grand prix next that's for another day of course but i'm sure that'll be exciting nonetheless given that the defining moment of the austrian grand prix was well it was what's soon becoming a kind of age-old battle isn't it between rosberg and hamilton we've got to start with this crash because this is really the the cumulative point of this entire race but for those who didn't see it it was a uh, it was rosberg essentially trying to run hamilton why it didn't work out for rosberg what did you make of that what was your reaction at the very moment it happened ted well bear in mind that i don't actually have a uh, a tv in the pit lane so um uh, I sorry to come over all football manager about this, but I, I don't often I don't often see these things uh, until after because my job in the pit lane is to commentate on things that the commentators don't see um, and that you can't see on the TV. Otherwise, there'd be no point. If I was just a lot of pit commentators, I won't name names, but <laughs> you know they don't join me in the pit lane. They just commentate on stuff that they're watching on TV. Um, and I've always thought there's, no, there's absolutely no point to doing that because if you're doing that, you might as well be a commentator or a third commentator. So um, I only got to see it uh, later on. Um, and it just seemed to me to be a sort of continuation of this, you know, macho, um, I'll show you who runs people out uh, and who doesn't argument that Hamilton and Rosberg have been having. They had it in Canada. Mm-hmm. didn't they when one of them one of them was on the outside and he said well you shouldn't have been on the outside and Rosberg went onto the grass uh and then they had it in uh, in a race earlier on in the year as well so it's 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 just a it's just a sort of continuation of of, of the kind of you know I'm not going to give way um almost Senna-esque you know if you continue on this line son we're going <laughs> to have an accident so it's a bit of a sort of macho fest and they both they'd both rather and they've kind of said this admitted this that they would both rather crash and not score any points for either of them than one of them give way and to show weakness to the other one uh, and I guess that's the point at which we got to between these two. Mm, it turns out that that friendly pool chat we heard so much yeah. about in the yeah. last fortnight didn't work out so well. Yeah. Uh, I I think what's fascinating about it, there are a couple of interesting things in this accent. As you said, it sort of was that continuation of uh, I dare you to crash, essentially. And we've seen heaps of them. We've seen, as you said, there was Montreal this year, there was Japan last year, Austin last year. But it seemed like after Spain when they actually did crash into each other properly, let's say, yeah. and both were out of the race, that it almost seemed like that was Rosberg finally gaining that uh, psychological advantage, advantage, I guess, in the sense that Hamilton knew the door would be closed. And yet 
It seemed like Rosberg took what I would have called an unnecessary step in this situation and, and really did try to push him really wide. I mean, what's your take on, on the fact that Rosberg did take this extra step now and didn't do, I guess, what we we all expected him to do and, and generally race kind of fair in those situations? Well, I don't know. I mean, he had a, uh, he had a brake problem. So the irony of the whole thing is, is that if Hamilton had just uh, tried to outbreak him and then cut back to the right hand side into that massive gap of nowhere uh, on the on the apex mm-hmm. um that Rosberg was saying that there wasn't room uh, or he you know there, there were, he hadn't left him any room or whatever um then uh Hamilton probably would have got by and it would have been a very clean move um obviously Lewis didn't know that Rosberg had critical brake problems mm-hmm. um so the whole thing could have been achieved probably one corner later or even on that same corner but if 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 Lewis had just driven clean around the outside given him even more room but I suppose then he would have been in the gravel um without without contact but uh I don't know I mean to answer your question it just seemed it just seemed a little clumsy but mm-hmm. um you know lots of people have said look Rosberg can't race clean um he ran him off the road uh, look, he doesn't even try to make the corner, and you know those views have all got merit. But I don't know. I'm not going to start saying, you know, blaming Rosberg for, or rather, I'm not going to start saying, you know, Rosberg can't race because there's plenty, plenty of evidence to, to suggest he can. But yeah, he did kind of mess it up on this occasion. Mm-hmm. And certainly, as a final point on this, uh, I do like that over the course of this rivalry, you've managed to collect, I think, some of Toto Wolff's finest moments. He <laughs> had his unacceptable race face on yesterday <laughs> when you found him, yeah. uh, and this time it was it was brainless, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I found his reaction slightly puzzling. I thought that we'd reached a kind of threshold of acceptance that this kind of thing was going to happen. Um, it was almost like Toto had wound himself up. And, and wanted to wanted to share that. I mean, after Spain, he was very well advised to to play it cool. Mm. And you know, Ferrari aren't the threat for the championship that they thought, or we thought, or that neutrals hoped they would be. Same for Red Bull. You know, Mercedes are going to win both championships this year. So what if they bash into each other now and again? <laughs> play it cool, Toto. You know, all right, okay. If you want to send a message to people working at Brackley and Bricksworth that, you know, uh, the drivers haven't respected the job they've done. I think he was, or the job of the mechanics rebuilding Rosberg's car in, in record time after after FP3. I think that's probably what Toto was, was most annoyed about, was that it mm-hmm. did show that, you know, they were heading for a 1-2. Um, and the drivers have made sure that it wasn't, and it could have been a double DNF. It wasn't. Um, mm-hmm. The drivers have made sure that it wasn't going to be a one-two, and that, and that somehow, you know, that was, uh, you know, the, the most terrible thing they could do. And he was there to defend the mechanics and everybody working in the factory's interests by, you know, publicly saying on TV that it was brainless. But he's got himself into a corner as now, Toto, because he's talking about, you know, we might impose team orders now. This morning, Lewis Hamilton's coming out saying, please don't impose team orders. I don't know. Maybe Toto's playing a incredibly intelligent triple bluff here. If he, <laughs> he comes out so strongly and says there might be team orders. He expects then the drivers to say, "Please, sir, don't impose team or impose team orders." To which he goes back and says, "Okay, I won't be to impose team orders if you two behave." Mm. 
So maybe that's the sort of maybe he's thinking three steps ahead. I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past him. He's quite a clever bloke, but uh, yeah, I was a bit surprised he came out so strong. I thought he'd play a bit cooler than that. Mm, especially as I think you pointed out, it'd been thirty races since the last accident before Spain uh, when he was playing it so cool. Maybe he thinks that maybe they were taking a little bit of an advantage of his of the new cool dad syndrome. You know, and they still won the race and. Yeah. Um, more to the point for 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 team harmony lewis won the race because if lewis hadn't won the race and we'll get onto this i'm sure in a minute Mm uh actually you would have had it would have been worse for team harmony than uh than toto and that would have been a bigger problem than toto's got at the moment yeah and now let's go back in time that was the crash that was the end of the race but let's go back to the beginning because this was ultimately set up by uh, a variety of different factors both beforehand uh, and in the race in fact the entire complexion of the race changed halfway through but as we sort of saw a lot last year and we can use Austin as the extreme example the really extreme example let's be honest where if there isn't enough representative practice there's a little bit of there's a little bit of guesswork in the race and we saw this on this weekend as well because all the practice days and qualifying included the conditions were quite different to race day whether it was raining or really warm race day was just really mild and cool and as a result we weren't really sure exactly what the limit of all the tyres were. Yeah. Let's start with the Ultrasoft as one example. Lewis Hamilton, he, his strategy started with a really long stint on the Ultrasoft when in FP3, just 24 hours earlier really, he was struggling to get even a handful of laps out of it. I mean, what was the rationale for Mercedes giving that a go given the data they'd collected? Well, the weather was the rationale um, because it was uh, it was boiling hot on uh, on Saturday morning in FP3 when they blistered, when they blistered the Ultrasoft mm. tyres. And um, and then it rained, and then it kept raining, and then by Sunday it was it was fifteen degrees, almost twenty degrees cooler than it was on on Saturday morning. So that gave Mercedes the confidence that they could go on a one stop on the ultra soft tires for Lewis, which is what they did. Mm-hmm. Although ultimately that strategy changed, didn't it? And we'll get we'll get actually to Vettel in a moment yeah. because one of the things we should talk about pre-race was the fact that the I suppose the story that's been simmering all year has been the tire pressures and who's been abusing them and who hasn't been. And the FIA has taken action in this sense. I mean, ultimately, it's just they're measuring it at a different time. But I mean, how much a did tire pressures come into this, and also the resurfacing of this track, which actually made them, the tires generate more heat than they would have otherwise done, play into all of that? The fact that the con- cooler conditions we still saw a competitive Ferrari for example. Yeah the tyre pressures thing um, there was a tightening up on the rules uh, as to when they're, when they're measured um, I think the the real answer to that is is to perfect the live tyre pressure monitoring systems uh, in mm-hmm. during the race. Um, they say at the moment the FI says they can't do that because they can't trust the teams not to build in an offset into their into their data uh, acquisition um, and then offset it in the data that they then pass on to the FIA and to Pirelli um, to tell them exactly accurately what their tyre pressures are when they're on the car in the middle of the race. I think there's a way around that. I think the FIA just put their own sensors on there. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, that's a bit of a bigger thing. But uh, yeah, the only way around it, of course, because... All the teams are complying with the rules, which is that uh, the tyre pressures are uh, at a uh, at a minimum level when the tyre mm-hmm. is fitted to the car and before it goes off in the race. But what those tyre pressures are during the race, when it's on the car, 
no one knows well the teams know <laughs> but uh, and, and and Pirelli say that they are less than the mandated pressures so they're still getting around it somehow track resurfacing it, it was yeah it was it was a darker tarmac um, and it was much grippier uh, and they were part of the part of the the, the circuits um, some corners which were much faster as well uh, so um, yeah that did that did have an impact I guess to a limited extent. And one of the other, well, let's say tentative unknowns, because uh, as we record this, we should add that as a caveat, we don't exactly know what's gone on. Uh, Pirelli's still investigating, but potentially one of the things that wasn't found out, let's say before the race, or wasn't known, was exactly how long these tyres should have lasted. Although it must be said, when Sebastian Vettel's super soft tyre did explode about halfway through the race, or a little bit before halfway through the race, actually, um, it should have been within the window of its expected tyre life, but that's still remaining unknown. In fact, I think someone was saying that Pirelli initially tweeted that it was debris and then deleted that tweet and now say it might not have been debris. Is this a Pirelli issue in the similar vein that we saw, was it Belgium last year on Sebastian Vettel's car as it happened? Or is this a Ferrari problem? Or do you think it maybe it was an external factor? I don't know. I mean, who knows, you know, who knows what what tyre pressures Ferrari were running that tyre during the race, Um, whether they were below uh, the Pirelli mandated pressures. You know, we don't know. We assume they that it wasn't below, but 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 we don't know. And Ferrari certainly won't tell us that. The tire was certainly within its uh, its expected life, uh, not only for performance but also for for, for pure wear. I, I mean, not only for degradation, which affects performance, but also you know for pure mm-hmm. wear. It was within, within that life. It was also Ferrari tell us uh, within the within the temperature range, in which it was designed to work. Um, I think it was probably more likely to be uh, a bit of heavy curb action <laughs> on that tyre that, uh, that 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 induced a weakness into it. Um, obviously, had Vettel pitted earlier, then uh, you know they wouldn't have had this. So there is, but Ferrari weren't to know that it was going to mm-hmm. uh, it was going to explode like that. There could have been some debris. I mean, bits fall off Formula One cars all the time. Mm-hmm. So um, there could have been a little bit of debris there. But uh, yeah, I think in a day or two, Pirelli probably will come out and say it was a bit of debris and excessive curb damage. And then everyone will kind of accept that <laughs> and, and move on. Probably apart from Sebastian Vettel, whose attitude towards Pirelli tyres, I don't think was changed much mm. uh, by the events by the events in Austria. Maybe Paul Hembry and Sebastian need some time by the pool as well. Yeah. I hope that from... <laughs> Subtitles. It's Austrian Grand Prix review as some heavy curb action. I think that would be a, be a great title. I'd watch it. So, um, that's another story altogether, really, the curbs. But up until that point, where Sebastian Vettel's tyre eventually did give way, we were on for a very different race to what we ultimately had. Because yes. we had Vettel and Rosberg engaged in this fight through the field uh, and we had Hamilton leading out front with a possible threat from Kimi Raikkonen who had uh, you know during uh, after a week where everyone was asking when he's going to retire had a typically well worthwhile performance yes. I suppose we can yes. say and it was going to be a battle of how long can or how far can we push this one-stop strategy. In the end, we saw that Mercedes had to do a two-stop, or they felt it was safer to do a two-stop. If we theoretically got this, let's say, hypothetical race, the first half of it played out, how do you feel like it could have ended, given what we know about Mercedes' feelings about tyre life towards the end, and the fact that Raikkonen did compete, did complete a, a, a reasonably competitive one-stop? Yeah, okay, right. So now we're getting on to the really interesting stuff. And I, I said mm-hmm. a little bit earlier, I said a few minutes ago, that Lewis was on a one-stop, which is what he did. 
Uh, you're right, he didn't do that. He did a two-stop. But what I meant was that he should have done a one-stop. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, is the crux of Mercedes' curious strategy in Austria and why I think mistakes were made and why Lewis Hamilton was so annoyed uh, in the car and... Uh, he wasn't so annoyed afterwards because he'd won the race, but why he felt aggrieved that he was, you know, found himself consistently behind Nico Rosberg. Because you're right, the first race was between Lewis Hamilton and Kimi Raikkonen and potentially uh, Sebastian Vettel. So when, and 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 it, it was very clear when when Nico Rosberg pitted on lap ten, that was clear that he was going to do a two stop. Presumably Lewis Hamilton knew that, uh, and Lewis Hamilton was going to do a one stop. Um, and they let the uh, they let the gap. He wasn't racing. Hamilton wasn't in. The, Hamilton wasn't racing Rosberg at, at that point, which is why. Uh, from if we take lap fifteen as an example, Rosberg was twenty seven twenty seven seconds behind behind Hamilton. Um, you go a few laps later, uh, lap uh, nineteen, uh, Rosberg was twenty three seconds behind Hamilton. Now, if we had, if the race was between Hamilton and Rosberg, which is which is what it ended up being after the Ferraris had had fallen out of the picture, then Mercedes would have pitted Lewis Hamilton on lap twenty when the, his gap to Rosberg was twenty one seconds because you need twenty seconds, including uh, a sort of average three second pit stop, to do a pit stop and still uh, remain out in front. Um, so they would have pitted Hamilton 10 laps later than Rosberg on lap 20 and Hamilton would have kept track position out in front. Hamilton would have gone to the end and Rosberg could have gone to the end if his tyres would have would have taken it. And even if they didn't do that, they could have left it as long as they did to ensure that Hamilton didn't do too many laps on his uh, on his tyres um, and pit Hamilton one lap later, as it was, you know, if we take lap 20, actually they pitted on him on lap 21. So they, they did kind of do that. But by lap 21, Rosberg was 16 seconds behind Hamilton. So Rosberg was guaranteed to, uh, to take the lead, uh, which he did. He took track position uh, over Hamilton. It wasn't help that Hamilton had a couple of slow stops. Um, but it, but in that situation, so Hamilton knows that Rosberg's ahead of him, but Rosberg has to stop again. And Hamilton's told by his team that he's on a one-stop. Um, and so he knows that he'll retake uh, the lead after Rosberg stops for his, for his second stop. But then, what do we get? Well, once the Ferraris are out of the picture, we get Mercedes bringing Hamilton in again for a second stop. Before Rosberg, let's not forget, before Rosberg makes his second stop, so that is the curious thing, and actually, it's 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 not just me saying this, and I've I've copped a bit of flack, as I believe <laughs> you say in uh, in Australia for 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 championing Hamilton's cause, and you know the usual sort of prejudicial views that uh, that you know that we love Lewis Hamilton on on Sky F One. You know, mm. I would be saying this about any driver in this position because this is what happened. They didn't need to make a second stop. Why did Mercedes make a second stop Mm -hmm. with Hamilton? They just didn't need to. Um, And I think Lewis was a bit uh, perplexed when they called him in on lap 54. I think he said in his interviews, I didn't know why they were doing that. But anyway, I did that. They they make the calls. Um, And um, it, 
it set up the crash that we that we spoken about earlier it's not just me saying this uh, on the flight back uh, from Graz to Luton um, I checked with a couple of other mechan- uh, a couple of other engineers strategy people from other teams and they too didn't understand why Hamilton had made a second stop why Mercedes had brought Hamilton in to make a second stop which which set up all this aggro um, a colleague of mine did ask Paddy Lowe uh, this very question and Paddy said that uh, we believed that when Rosberg stopped for his uh, second stop which was on lap 56 yes it was 55 55 um, they believed that Rosberg on quicker tyres or fresher tyres would have caught and passed Hamilton in the remaining uh, 15 laps or so. Well, if you look at the... Is that true? If you look at the lap analysis, that doesn't really bear out. So Hamilton's... If we take Hamilton's lap times around lap 50 or 51, this is three laps before he was going to come into the pits, they're, they're fine. You know, they're pretty solid. And Hamilton was looking after the tyres, whichever compound he was on. So the tyres, the times, his times were a, a, a 9 point, 109.3, 109.5, 109.2, 108.8. And that was on lap 52 when he was starting to push because he got the instruction uh, to push before his second stop. So all of those, all of those times in the 109s, he could have continued with that to the end of the race. And Rosberg... Rosberg, if you look at Rosberg's times um, on fresh tyres, which gives a clue as to as to how quick he would have been, or indeed how quick he was on fresh tyres uh, towards the end, he was only closing Hamilton down by an average of about half a second. Maybe if you're generous, well, hey, even uh, three quarters of a second. Even if you're not generous, even if you say it's a second a lap, he only had fifteen laps in which to do that. He would have had 55 to 65, that's 10, 66, 67, 68, 69, 70, that's 15, and 71. So, all right, 16 laps. So he would have been, he would have been, Rosberg would have been three set. he would have been catching Hamilton, no question about mm-hmm. it, on fresher tyres, had Hamilton not made that second stop. But he would have run out of laps before he could have overtaken him. He would have been about four laps short. Mm. Of properly overtaking him. It's an interesting situation for Mercedes. Uh, and before we touch on what is possibly the other strategic question, I suppose, uh, over at Ferrari, if we can call it that exactly, I mean, do you feel like in that situation, we're talking about this two-race concept whereby what they were racing for changed quite dramatically or changed in any case after that safety car. Yeah. Given that Mercedes has obviously the history of tension, given they've got two competing drivers for the world championship, how do you feel like... we? T- and we talked about, I suppose, inter-team harmony at the beginning of this as well. Had they been racing each other as they ultimately were in that second half and only one of the drivers had to complete a stop... Do you feel like that ultimately would have been more detrimental to that harmony, given ultimately it was kind of like a half race we had at the end where they both completed a stop each? Well, I think this is a crucial point, and I think you, you've picked up on 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 why they switched Lewis from a one to a two, because it's this it's this desire for fairness. So the, they have to be fair 
to both their drivers. And this is a central part of of, of, of Mercedes' strategy. And, and in a way, they sometimes uh, screw themselves with how fair they have to be to their drivers. We've, we've seen that before. Um, so going into it, they said, and, and, and I've, you know, it's, it's on Paddy Lowe's quotes on Mercedes press release, you know, go, go read it for yourself. Paddy says, um, our intention was uh, to put Lewis on a one and Nico on a two. Um, and, uh, but then we realized that Nico's two would be, uh, quicker than Lewis's one. All right. I'm doubting that the lap times doubt that, but okay. That's what Paddy says. So we switched Lewis onto a two. Yeah. Okay. They, then they did, but so in their attempt to be fair, they set up this problem for themselves, I would suggest um, that when Lewis had a, and Lewis didn't help by, you know, he, or the team didn't give him a quick pit stop. In fact, he lost time in both pit stops. That didn't help, A. And B, Lewis didn't help his own chances of making a two-stop work by messing out the outlap and losing a couple of seconds on that. So uh, it, it, it's, this, it's this desire to be fair um, and thinking, oh no, uh, if we keep Lewis on a one and Nico on a two, Nico's Nico's going to beat him. Um, so let's just be fair and put them on the same strategy that kind of got them into this this mess a bit. But yeah, um, it's you know I was saying in the in the commentary that uh, um, talking about you know fairness, but I was only really reflecting. I was partly playing devil's advocate, but I was partly, partly reflecting what Lewis Hamilton is going to be thinking as well, because that's clearly what he was thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I think at the end of the race, I I did a slightly silly question to, well, I didn't phrase my question particularly well to, uh, uh, to Nicky Lauda when I said, was there a, I think there was a, was there a moral obligation to, uh, uh, to give Lewis the the better strategy to, to allow him to win the race. I think that's where a lot of, I copped a load of (laughs) flack because people thought, people thought, well, hang on, nobody has a moral obligation to win any race. And they're absolutely right. I just, I just phrased it wrong, but my intention was, was sound was that, Mm -hmm. was that did the team feel like they had to give Lewis, you know, keep, keep giving him the best strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, because they had, because they thought the strategy they thought they'd given him, which would be ad- advantageous, turned out they thought not to be advantageous. And from that point, they were all in a bit of a muddle as to, okay, well, hang on, how are we going to make amends here? How are we going to make up for uh, this strategy that we thought we were giving Lewis, which was going to win him the race? But now, at which point we seriously doubt is going to win him the race, um, and that it's going to give Rosberg the race, and that will mean we get a grumpy Lewis. <laughs> we don't want a grumpy Lewis because we, everybody knows what happens when you get a grumpy Lewis. So, yeah, if anyone's listening to this who was yeah, uh, somewhat perturbed by my question to Laura, that was the intention behind that. And, and, and I absolutely stand by that because, you know, as it turned out, if, if, if the crash hadn't happened and Rosberg had held him off and didn't have brake problems and all of that and, and, and it had finished Rosberg 1, Hamilton 2, mm-hmm. you know, we would be having uh, an apoplectic <laughs> Lewis Hamilton. There would be a bigger fallout to this. Mm-hmm. 
than there is at the moment. Maybe it's that we're in some kind of parallel universe where Toto Wolf was describing his own team as brainless. Maybe this was completely misunderstood. Ted. No, no, no. <laughs> no, they just got themselves. I just got. I think they got. I mean, we saw. I didn't see this again, but did you see? Did Lewis Hamilton like not shake the strategist James Valls's hand when they were in the cool down room or something? Did you did did you see this? Uh, or? I don't know. I w- I wouldn't have noticed if I saw it. I did know that he very intentionally sprayed James Vales with champagne when he clearly said, "Please did he? don't." Okay. Um, <laughs> That's more of a podium thing, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and, and then he hugged him. But uh, there was something someone said to me in the airport, and I stress I haven't seen this. Um, that James put his hand out to shake Lewis's hand, and either Lewis blanked him or didn't see him. I've got no idea. I haven't actually checked it back, but. Uh, Maybe some of your viewers will, will know what I'm talking about. Our listeners will know what I'm talking about. But um, um, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I hope that wasn't a snub because James Vowles has won Lewis, you know, a lot of a lot of races and a lot of championships. <laughs> so uh, if Lewis felt that uh, uh, he was being disadvantaged, um, you know, he might have he might have had cause to do that, and maybe he was a bit more annoyed about the the tire choice. That uh, Rosberg was put onto super softs and Lewis was put onto another so- set of softs. Actually, that's a red herring. Lewis shouldn't have been concerned about that because the soft was the better race tire, which proved to be uh, so. And and apart from the fact that Rosberg didn't have any sets of soft tires left, so they didn't have a choice. They had no choice. They had to put Rosberg on the. I guess they could have put Lewis on the super soft. Um, but actually, as it turned out, the soft was a better race tyre. Now, let's talk about the remnants. That was race A, let's say, the race for the lead. Let's talk yep. about the remnants of race B, though, because that played out ultimately into what was second and third. Possibly should have been third and fourth, but nonetheless. Verstappen and Raikkonen did complete the one-stop, uh, which was, I guess, part of that original yeah. race. Yeah, if, if Verstappen and Raikkonen completed it, then why couldn't have Hamilton have completed it? Well, that's a fair point, certainly, considering how late, uh, late Hamilton stopped compared to Verstappen. Compared to them exactly Mm. exactly and Verstappen became as far as I know the first appearance of Lederhosen on a Formula (laughs) 1 podium at least faux Lederhosen anyway I don't know if uh, vinyl print uh, counts, but anyway, uh, they had. I mean, Raikkonen seemed to be quite strong on the one stop. Do you feel like, given that the car was clearly capable of it, as it turned out, likewise the Red Bull car, as it turned out, that there were missed opportunities? Let's start with Ferrari first of all, given that their season's been an entire book of missed opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I would have liked to see what had happened with 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 Sebastian Vettel I think as as everybody would um the one stop was possible you know Raikkonen showed that Verstappen showed that and why that wasn't uh, apparent to Hamilton's pit wall you know remains to be seen but um if we if we sort of pick the race around uh when Sebastian Vettel was you know was was still in contention around I don't know say uh say lap 25 or 24 something like that you know Sebastian Vettel was 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 out in front um he had Nico Rosberg behind him and then 20 seconds behind him he had uh he had uh Roman Grosjean and Kimi Raikkonen so uh, when Vettel eventually made his stop he would have come out come out behind Raikkonen and they would have both gone to the end um Lewis would have been you know in amongst that uh and eventually 
uh, might have challenged them. But uh, yeah, it was it, it, it was a missed opportunity. I'm still trying to figure out. Obviously, we know what happened to uh, to Vettel, but I'm still trying to figure out exactly why Raikkonen's race ended the way it did. Well, it was given that yeah, he seemed to be shadowing. It was Hamilton at the time, I guess, and it dropped. They dropped him into traffic at that first stop behind both Red Bulls. Yeah, I'm just having a look at when uh, Kimi pitted, and his and his lap times do they do reflect that? Is that he pitted on lap 22? Uh, did Kimi, and then you're right, he lost an awful lot of time, um, and that was before the safety car. So the safety car also kind of wrecked wrecked Kimi's race um, mm-hmm. as well. And after that, he never really never really recovered. Um, apart from, of course, the uh, the surprise at the end, but it was it was Verstappen. Verstappen managed to get track position on him, didn't he? When they pitted Kimi, so after after Kimi uh, after the, the safety car uh, sorted itself out, if we sort of rejoin the race, you know, lap thirty when it when it sorted itself out, then yeah, you're absolutely right. Kimi was 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 behind uh, the two Red Bulls, uh, Ricardo. Uh, immediately in front of him, and then Verstappen uh, in front of him. So that was, yeah, the early the early stop for uh, for the Red Bulls was was great, and it was Max who managed to make the tyres last, whereas Ricardo didn't. So yeah, a bit a bit a bit messy for Kimi. Not all of his own, not all of his own doing. And you can you can certainly call it you know missed opportunities. But uh, I don't know they seem to be uh, seem to be plodding on. They think it will turn the tide will turn for them eventually. Mm. And wonder if they'll still be saying that by the end of the season. That's the question. Yeah. A couple of quick yeah. ones as well that would be remiss of us not to mention uh, in this race. Jensen Button, when Button was following Hamilton off the off the line, it was like a, a reminiscent scene of years gone past. And yeah. ultimately, he couldn't hold it. But to be fair to him, what was it? Finished sixth, which is a pretty good result considering no one really rated him in this race. And also, I think McLaren Honda themselves said, oh, look, look for about 12th, higher than 12th will be good. I mean, this shows there's a bit of there's a bit of hope in this team now, surely. Well, hope's kind of all they've got. So yeah, I hope, <laughs> I hope that is the case. Um, but this was a this was a great strategy, and this was a a, a a clear case of when being aggressive works. Because Jensen stopped on lap nine, and then again um, just before the safety car, uh, when Vettel had his accident, they were straight in. Um, and change tyres because they were in the right the right part of the track to react quickly. They knew it would be a safety car and, and they stopped on uh, lap 26 and went to the end. So that was another car that showed that they could go from lap 26 to the end on one set of tyres um, that uh, uh, should have pointed to Lewis Hamilton not having to make that second stop. But anyway, yeah, it was a nice strategy by Jensen. Um, took advantage of a lot of other people, looked after his tyres and uh, got a, a deserved sixth place. But it was a nice example, yeah, of a sort of aggressive, early race, tilted, you know, slightly offset strategy to, to, to a couple of early stops. Um, you know, and finishing all his pit stops on lap 26 of a of a 71-lap race, you know, is, is just an example of what I'm saying. You know, you sort of start early and aggressive when the tyres 
uh, having a hard time because of the fuel level, and then um, and then nurse at home, which is what he did. Uh, and another standout, in fact, arguably the standout of the race. In fact, I think I, you gave him one of your stars at the end of the race in your notebook yep. was Pascal Verlein, yep. who ran a similar-ish strategy to Jensen Button with the noted example that he was last behind the safety car and came home to finish 10th. Only slightly fortuitous given Sergio Perez's crash at the end, but the rest was very well earned for the manor driver. It was, and it was all helped by the qualifying position mm-hmm. um, of... Uh, 12th on the grid and and you know thank heavens for him that he knew the rule that you that before the light was on you could actually reverse back into your into your pit box because yeah. that was a real get out of jail free card and i was watching the race director watch i was watching the race director watch verline mm-hmm. and charlie was nice at charlie whiting he was he was he was very nice actually he let he let verline reverse and only when he saw verline was actually back in his correct pit box did he start the the light sequence to start the race? So Charlie did Pascal a favour there because he could have just ignored him, seen that he was in the wrong box, started the start light procedure, and then given Verline a penalty, or rather suggested to the stewards that, that they give uh, Verline a penalty uh, in the race. But he didn't do that. And so, yeah, so running running as high as, as Verline did uh, throughout the race. And, and yes, you know, you can say, that uh, it was down, but you're right. He was he was he was dead last. Carlin number ninety four. He was dead last around sort of the the mid the mid lap thirties, um, for for quite a few laps actually. But then the Sauber's started pitting and everybody pitted for the second time. And Harry Anto's teammate got out of the way as well, and uh, he just edges his, himself back up, as you say, slightly fortuitously by other people. Suddenly, without a rash of people dropping out, Alonso, Hulkenberg, Massa. Uh, towards the end of the race, Perez with 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 brake problems and or teams just wanting to save the car and get a new gearbox for Silverstone, but um, yeah, from being uh, from being last to tenth, good effort. Yeah, not bad. I think that's the least we can say of him. Uh, and certainly an interesting battle between the manor drivers still to go. Whether or not that lasts the whole season and up to the midway, I guess we'll find out. And a final note: the man that a lot of people will have been watching, not only given that he's a Le Mans winner and in a Force India that. Well, he's been looking pretty handy the last couple of races with Nico Hulkenberg, but that car just really seemed nowhere once the race started, despite the qualifying pace being really pretty good. Yeah, it was strange, wasn't it? Um, I was kind of asking around, and they were just talking about brake brake issues and race-long brake problems. Um, I don't know. I think the car rather cooked the tyres, and I wondered if 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 the setup they had was was most suited for quick warm-up of the tyres that they knew would help them in wet conditions um, and indeed did Uh, but then when it came to it actually the tyres degraded quite quite significantly he was he was one of the first in if not the first on lap eight for his first stop Hulkenberg so uh, that was that was that was really early and then lap again again lap 24 Um, and then again where they were trying to get to the end on that set of soft tyres from lap 24, which plenty of other people's managed, it just became very difficult. And I think they might have picked up a, a flat spot. And Hulkenberg had to pit again on lap 50 when he served his five-place penalty for speeding in the pit lane. There was a penalty as well, of course, for Hulkenberg, wasn't there? So uh, that didn't do anything to help his race. So, yeah, it was a it was a disappointing um, result. And I think I saw a tweet from Vijay Malia this morning saying that he's... Uh, He's absolutely gutted for his team's performance 
Um, you would have thought he's got bigger things to worry about than but no, he seems <laughs> he seems absolutely gutted for uh, for his team's performance. And I am, you know, I'm sure he is. But um, mm. nice to know he's still keeping in touch, uh, even though we haven't seen him on the track recently. No, gutted's the word of the weekend. I think everyone's had their turn using it. I believe. Yeah. Uh, as a final note, Ted, to wrap this up and also to look ahead at Silverstone and beyond, uh, this was a good example, Austria, uh, of the new tyre rules because we saw all the tyres, all three tyres for 2016 being used. And also, what I think has been really interesting, while this has always been an option in the past, it seems to be utilised certainly this year, the idea of starting on a different tyre because you have the option in Q2 of having a tyre that can still get you through to Q3. And we saw the Ferraris and Red Bull cars do it. How much, certainly from your perspective, as, as the guy who really has to keep an eye on all these things and, and use strategy to tell the story, that how big an advantage or how big a boon for Formula One, rather, has these new rules been? And, and do you feel that there's still that risk that everyone's just going to end up following you know, the same pattern, which was the fear last year when the rules was changed? Because that hasn't really come to pass yet. No, it hasn't. And people are effectively following a similar pattern because... The truth of it is that nobody who has ever tried one of those contra tire strategies in terms of tire starting on a different compound that they've never won. You look, you look back on it; it's never been a winning strategy. So you could argue, all right, or well maybe it hasn't because it's a bit of a risk, and by definition, trying something different, a contra strategy means that you th- you don't think you're going to win on the same strategy as the people who are out front, so you're going to try something different, because otherwise you're just guaranteed to finish behind them. Um, but it's it didn't work for Ferrari or, Mercedes or, or Red Bull in Austria. Um, and actually, Hamilton's Ultrasofts lasted just as long as the Ferrari's Supersofts, and longer than Red Bull's Supersoft. So that didn't work at all for Red Bull, did it? But uh, so, uh, yeah, those contrastatories have never won a race so far, and I don't see them doing it. But to answer your other question, yes, I think it's great. Um, we've got, you know, a, a, it's it spiced up the racing very nicely. It's given people a bit more to, to think about and to look at, with the only drawback being that as Martin Brundle said in the commentary, we do end up talking a lot more about tyres. Mm-hmm. And tyres are inherently dull. <laughs> they are. I'm sorry, you know, listen, I, I make my I make my living on uh, on talking about them, but I try not to whenever possible because they are inherently boring. So, um, well, they're not boring. They're just, it's, it's just a bit, because what they mean isn't boring mm-hmm. it doesn't become you know what what what, what they the races and the, the 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 battles that they uh contribute to aren't boring but it's just you know to most people and to me as a, as a fan as well because that's all i am i'm just a fan watching a race just like everybody else but from a, a, a you know a lucky privileged position you just say the word tires and i'm like oh <laughs> you know it's like they are a bit dull so um but but yeah they've led to what they have led to is some really fascinating storylines in races Mm -hmm. black round pirelli as uh as they say ted kravitz it was a a really interesting austrian grand prix as it turned out for maybe not all the reasons mercedes wanted to be but certainly for us it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the program thank you so much for joining me okay no problem thanks a lot 
And that's all the time we have for this edition of the Strategy Report. If you want to read more about the strategy of the Austrian Grand Prix, go to f1strategyreport.com and find Jack Leslie's write-up of all the action from the Red Bull ring. Don't forget you can now download the new version of Formula Legend for your mobile device on iOS or Android. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato. You can find me at Michael Laminato on Twitter. And be sure to join me in just one week's time as we look back on the British Grand Prix.